0: If you do have a Bible, I would invite you to take it out and turn to the book of Ephesians. I'm only going to read uh, two verses. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. that's uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where Paul writes these words. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus... Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we do indeed have grace and peace from you and from our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts uh, to that message of grace this morning. And we pray that you would meet with us, as you promise, by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, um, one of the skills that you develop over time as a parent, I actually kind of mark this as a success, a parenting success. Because over time as a parent, if you can determine exactly how it is from each of your children as individuals, to elicit a sigh and a groan and an eye roll exactly when you want to, I feel like you've done a pretty good job of getting to know your children. And I feel like that this is something that I've, I've really taken seriously as my role as a parent over the course of all these many years. You know, how to embarrass my children, like right now, uh, for example, uh, or, you know, how to, how to get them to roll their eyes in any situation, You know, for one, it's just a dumb dad joke. You know, he does it every time. Sigh, groan, eye roll. For another, it's just laughing too loud in public. You're like, I'm drawing attention to my my goofiness, you know, somehow. That's a sigh, that's a groan. That's an eye roll. But there has been one thing that I have done over the course of our kids' lives that, even though they're very different, has elicited the same sigh, the same groan, and the same eye roll. And basically, it is this. When my kids uh, got old enough, when my oldest son got old enough um, many years ago now, uh, to You know, start going out with his friends on Friday night and on Saturday night to kind of start leaving our house to go out into the world, you know. Um, He would be getting ready. He would try to sneak out the front door, but I would always be, you know, kind of strategically positioned. And I would ask two questions. And the first question would be this. What's your name? Sigh, groan, eye roll. Then smart response, Jackson. Jackson. That wasn't actually the question that I was asking. So i say, no, what's your last name? Cy Grown Irel Holland. Okay, second question. What does that mean? Cy Grown Irel. Act like a Holland. And then he's out the door, you know. I, I, I've done this for years, still doing it to this very day. And all three of my children hated it. Uh, actually. But I'm going to defend this practice on a couple of grounds, and the main ground is that it actually is derived in principle from something that we could actually see in the Bible. Uh, This kind of game in some senses that we've been playing over the course of many years in the Holland House is sort of consistent with the message of the book of Ephesians because you can actually broadly break up the entire letter of the Ephesians in two questions. One, who are you? Who are you? That's question number one. Paul spends three chapters answering that question. Second question, how are you called to live your life in light of who you are? How are you called to live your life in light of who you are? Paul spends 3 chapters, 4, 5, and 6, answering that question. That's really it. It's not more complicated than that. So why is Ephesians 6 chapters long instead of 6, you know, sentences long? And the answer to that question is because Although the answers are straightforward and and clear, they are multifaceted in their beauty and in their glory. And because you can get behind those questions and ask some sub-questions, like in my family life, there are some questions that actually lie behind those two questions that I ask. One is this, why do my children go by the name Holland? How'd they get that name? Did they sign up for it? Did they volunteer for it? How did it come to be that they are Hollands? Second, does the name Holland precede or does the name Holland follow their call to live in light of who they are? In other words, are they earning the name of Holland by the way that they live? Or is that the name that was placed upon them and they live in light of it? Big question. Very big difference there. Can they lose the name Holland by not being perfect in their ability to live up to it? Is their continuation in the Holland family contingent upon their actions? Fourth, do they live this life in our family in isolation, or do they live it in the community of our family with the full presence and the full support? of their parents and their siblings in leaning together in what it means for our family to live as our family. Now, see, it's questions like these, if you apply them to our lives in Christ, that really prompt the apostle to write six chapters because you can see each facet of this beauty, of this gospel, of this call to be who we are is... Glorious and takes some time. So, this morning, in the limited time that I have, I actually just want to point us to the first two verses in Ephesians by way of an introduction. And what I want you to do is to catch just the briefest glimpse, the briefest glimpse this morning, of why a former president of Princeton Seminary named uh, John Mackay summarized Ephesians this way He said, What we have in Paul's letter to the Ephesians is truth that sings. Isn't that awesome? Think about that. What we have in Paul's letter to the Ephesians is truth that sings. It's doctrine set to music. That's beautiful. And so, here is the summary of the letter. Paul's letter to the Ephesians speaks to the incomparable riches of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and how to live in light of the riches of the gospel in a world that is often hostile to the riches of the gospel. Ephesians speaks to the incomparable riches of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, how to live our lives in light of those riches in a world that is often hostile to those riches. And to be completely honest about this, I have been thinking about this sermon series since November the 22nd when the congregation called the pulpit committee together to do this work of examining John Trapp as a potential senior pastor candidate at Christ the King. Not knowing what they were going to find and not knowing which direction this was going to go, I did start thinking and praying about this. Hmm. It could be that I have one good full sermon series left in me as the senior pastor of Christ the King. One one sermon series left before passing the baton to a new leader. What should that be? I actually thought about that a long time. I prayed about that a long time, and I thought, Ephesians. Ephesians, why? Why? Because I want, more than anything else, for this church, Christ the King, to treasure the gospel. I want this church, Christ the King, to live both as individuals and as a community of God's people in light of the gospel. And I want this church fully committed to walking with one another in the way of the gospel. Bringing tangible and real community support to one another. Uh, as we attempt to walk in faithfulness out into the world, in which case you suffer a lot of hardship and a lot of pain and shouldn't have to suffer that pain alone. That's my deepest hope for Christ the King. And all of that and more is addressed in Ephesians. So let's jump in. First, who wrote this letter? The answer is in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, Now, as is true of the rest of Ephesians, every single word in this sentence, in this verse, is purposeful and important. So let's unpack it just a little bit. So first, Paul, an apostle. Apostle is a technical term in the New Testament. It has a particular definition. It's not just a willy-nilly term that people assign to themselves or just throw out there haphazardly. An apostle in the context of the New Testament is one who is chosen and called and sent to teach, and this is important, this is the important part, chosen, called, and sent to teach with the authority of the one who chose and called and sent them. That's an apostle. An apostle does not present their own message they present the message of the one that chose them, called them, and sent them to proclaim that message. Now, we originally hear of 12 apostles that we read about in the Gospels. Matthew, the tax collector, Peter, the fisherman, and others. Each of them were called by Jesus specifically. Uh, Peter's walking down the beach and says, you. I mean, Jesus is walking down the beach says, you, follow me. That's the call of an apostle then they were taught by him specifically they were eyewitnesses to his miracles and to other things that he did they overheard him teaching in the crowds and even though they deserted him at the time of his crucifixion he did appear to all of them after well 11 of them at this point after his resurrection from the dead and gave them a charge to present his name in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Now, how does Paul fit into this? Well, that's the second part of the sentence. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. Paul has a different story than Peter has. He has a different story than Thomas has. He has a different story than Matthew has. Paul, who was actively working against the nascent Christian church, persecuting them, doing all kinds of horrible things to them, was confronted by Jesus for the first time after Jesus' resurrection. You can read all about this in Paul chapter 9, Paul chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, which is about the conversion of Paul and his call to be an apostle. Jesus specifically chose Paul, one who had previously persecuted Jesus' followers, to bear witness to the message, the redemptive gospel message to the Gentile world. Paul was chosen by Jesus personally. He was trained in the way of the gospel specifically by eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus, and he was commissioned and sent by Jesus on his mission. The point is this, Paul didn't volunteer for this. It's a pretty tough job. He, a, lot of things, a lot of bad things happened to Paul. He didn't volunteer for it, he didn't sign up for it. He was chosen for it, he was trained for it, he was sent into it by Jesus himself. If you want to put this in contemporary terms, you can think about it this way. Paul had 0% internal call to the ministry of the gospel. Zero. But his external call to the ministry of the gospel is pretty unimpeachable because it was directly by the risen Jesus Christ himself. And this is why this is important. As an apostle, the authority with which Paul writes these words carries the authority of Jesus himself. These are not simply Paul's words. These are the words of Christ to his church that are poured out through the instrument, Jesus' apostolic instrument of the apostle Paul. And the authority with which Paul writes these words carries the authority of Jesus himself. This is huge. It's huge because there are some gloriously beautiful and encouraging things in Ephesians. Some things that make your heart sing. Some things if you're struggling. Some things that if you're doubting. Some things if you are anxious tether you more to Jesus and bring you great encouragement. But as with the rest of Scripture, there are also some hard words in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. There are some things that are taught in Ephesians that some people don't think are Uh, are particularly relevant in our culture anymore. But it's both the wonderful things and the hard things that, that are presented in this letter, where it is important and critical for us, coming into a study of this letter, to remember these first words of the epistle. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So that is the author of this letter. It is Paul writing with the authority of Christ himself. To whom is this letter written? Well, we'll keep going in verse 1. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Jesus Christ. Again, tons to unpack here. We don't have time to unpack all of it, but let's scan it just a little bit. First, to the saints. Now, a saint and an angel are not the same thing. I know this is sometimes confusing in our cultural context. Uh, But these are not the same things. A saint is uh, a believer. Essentially, a saint is someone who is, in this context, a saint is someone who has already placed his or her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word in the original language, hagios, which means holy one, is someone who has already placed their faith and their trust in Christ Jesus. Now think about this for just a second. Paul says, to the saints... And then we've already talked about, okay, what's the message of this letter? Well, the message of this letter is the glory of the gospel and how to live our lives in light of the glory of the gospel. And the point here is this, and this is really important. This letter is written directly to believers. It is written written directly to people who have already placed their trust in Jesus, yet its subject is the gospel, it's subject is what Christ did for you. It's subject is leaning more fully into what Christ did for you and living your life on, on, uh, in light of that. We never get too old and we never get too mature and we never outgrow as saints the gospel. There's beauty in it for the unbeliever and there is beauty in it for the believer. So Paul writes to the saints. He writes to the saints who are in Ephesus. Ephesus was a port city on the western coast of what was then called Asia Minor and is now called Turkey. Uh, One of the distinguishing features of Ephesus is that it had the largest temple in the world that was dedicated to the worship of Diana, the pagan worship of Diana. Um, This actually has ramifications for the gospel, and you can read all about it in Acts chapter 19. Because in Acts chapter 19, a riot broke out in the city of Ephesus among small business owners. Do you know why? It's because there being the largest temple in the world dedicated to the worship of Diana, the Greek goddess Diana, there was a lot of small business people who made and sold items that were necessary for the worship of Diana. Silversmiths who crafted uh, golden images, uh, people who sold sacrificial kind of things, you know, for that. And here's what happened. I'm going somewhere with this, but but here's what happened. Paul is preaching the gospel And so many people are coming to faith in Christ in Ephesus that it affects business. It affects the pocketbooks of the small business leaders who are making and selling goods for the worship of Diana, and they riot. They riot. They try to kick Paul out. They try to beat him up and kick him out of the town. The gospel has ramifications for all of life. And some of that ramification does actually have the transformation of our vocational lives and the transformation of our financial lives. But think about it this way. Ephesus is a port city that was very diverse because it was a crossroads of different cultures for worship uh, in that area of the country and that it highly valued business. Now that sounds familiar to me. You know, a port city that is highly diverse, that, that values uh, the, the business life of the city. I actually think it's a little bit cheesy to go, see, Ephesus is Houston. So I won't. Um, but there are some similarities, right? There are definitely some, some things that we can learn uh, 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 about living faithfully in our own city by studying what Paul writes particularly to the saints who are in Ephesus. And finally... They are faithful in Christ Jesus. Here Paul hints at the main point of the letter. Followers of Jesus are faithful. Followers of Jesus live their lives in faithfulness to him. In Christ Jesus. We are faithful to Jesus in Christ Jesus. The rest of chapter 1 is all about what it means to be in Christ. It's all about what it means to be united to Christ. It is the glory of the most glorious gospel that it is Christ who both rescues us from our sin but also keeps us close to him and does not abandon us. And so, to you saints here in Houston who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You are saved and you are held firm by grace. The result of that is peace in the knowledge that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this book. We pray that as we delve into it, we would do it with faithfulness to you, with open eyes and ears and hearts and lives to be taught and to be shaped by your gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.